and welcome to this special episode of No Really I'm Fine. And it's special because not only is it our final episode of series two, which is obviously really sad, but again, just like last week's episode, if you've listened to last week's episode, we basically, myself and Gemma, it's just us. It's like a bit on RuPaul's Drag Race when they say, just the family here together (laughs) for the final episode of the series when they don't have like any special guests. They just have like... The the originals, <laughs> so it's a bit like that. I've so, only watched season one of RuPaul, yeah. so yeah. basically, <laughs> the, basically, it's like the finale of RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, um, and we are the finale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very niche reference. <laughs> it is. RuPaul's not for it. It's, it's quite it's quite mainstream these days. But anyway, um, so just me and Gemma. Um, last week, if you're listening. Uh, I spoke about um, my story and my journey with mental health, which is obviously still ongoing, as is everyone's, I think, their journeys with mental health is constantly ongoing. But today uh, we're going to speak, I'm going to speak to Gemma, obviously our co- our, my co-host on the show, and and we're just going to talk about each other. So, you know, we'll start, I'll start asking you, uh, you know, uh, as we ask every guest, are you really fine today? Yeah, today is a good day. Um I actually, it's quite um, pivotal, really, because I had a well-being meeting with my manager earlier today um, about my mental health and, and support work given me at the moment. So, yeah, it, it feels like a positive start to the week. So I'm feeling okay today. A well-being meeting. Yeah, well, I had a meeting with, I don't know if you know Sarah Edwards, who's our HR advisor here for the company. Right. And with my lovely manager, Frances Barrett. Um, and... Because I'm quite vocal about my mental health struggles and how that impacts on my workload, um, work has been very helpful in that in that sense and in, in getting me um, therapy that I might have to wait longer on the NHS. So I'm quite fortunate mm. to have that support. No, that's good. I didn't. I didn't actually know. So yeah, you know, so, I didn't. I didn't yeah. know you could. Anyone listening have. to this right now who works <laughs> for our company? There you go. <laughs> I suppose it is quite good. Actually, it's good that our company does that because not every company offers no. this sort of stuff. No, not definitely not. Um, and I've been in situations where, you know, you're made to feel. I'm not going to obviously name any other businesses or like that or anything, but I have been in situations, unfortunately, where you are made to feel like your mental illness is a problem and not something that should be helped or supported. So it's quite refreshing to work for some work for a company like Reach PLC to to have that mental illness recognised and, and supported. That's good. Well, so for anyone who didn't listen to last week, basically I spoke about my story um, and this week you're going to speak to us about yours. So I actually, yeah. I don't know a massive amount about your mental health story. I know that the, the extent of which I know is that you spoke um, about your mental health, I think about a year and a half ago, um, at last, not to 2018, the um, World Mental Health Day, is that right? And yeah. you did an article. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, then. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I feel like um, when I'm ready to write about my mental health, it's always at various stages in my life and it's never the whole picture that I've painted or told everyone. Just because so many things have happened to me that I just, it's difficult to write it in one article mm. um, sort of thing. But yeah, I did a piece for the Liverpool Echo in 2018 for World Mental Health Day about um, one of my darkest moments in terms of um, considering suicide, basically. But yeah, I, I mean... I'd like to go back to the beginning, really, of 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 what 
happened to me when I was younger and stuff. As as we've heard with a lot of our guests, a lot you know some of our guests all have different stories, but a, a lot of them seem to have be, been bullied at school. Well, I know a few of them who I've spoken to, and um, that was a that was a theme for me really. Um, you know, I was I was premature when I was born, and the doctor basically said to my mum that I shouldn't really be alive. Um, I was supposed to be born in April, but I was born in February, so I was very impatient. Mm. <laughs> but because that, you know, I was fit, I was healthy, and I was actually quite um, smart in primary school. But there were certain issues that reflected my body development. For instance, the anxiety was present then, and obviously I didn't recognise her as a seven, eight-year-old. Um, and I used to get bullied for, you know, having bushy eyebrows or anything, having pale skin, um, just being a bit more shyer than the other kids. And I would I would resolve that by, I used to have a problem with my bladder, so I'd wet, wet myself a lot. So that was obviously more of a target for bullies. And I don't know in primary school, you know, everyone has the ghost stories, the horror stories, whereas in our primary school, there was like a story going around about how the girls' toilets were haunted. And obviously being a naive young young girl, um, well, not necessarily naive, but, you know, you, you believe anything when you're, when you're little. I did anyway. Mm. I believe that. And I used to get so terrified of putting my hand up in class to ask to go to the toilet because I was so terrified to go to the toilet on my own. But then also there would be that anxiety there of, of not wanting to disrupt the class and not wanting to draw attention to my problem even further by asking to go for the toilet so it's constant battle so I used to wee myself a lot in class and you know I'd come home and and obviously mum and dad would know because you know I I would smell Um, and that sort of carried on throughout primary school actually carried on into year seven of high school it was quite quite a big problem but um, it seemed to just go I don't know why Um, obviously when I went to an all-girls school in high school I didn't really believe ghost stories anymore and I was fine to go to the toilet. <laughs> so that that stayed with me. Um, and yeah, my mum and dad made a conscious effort of wanting me to go to an all-girls school. They weren't like pushy parents or anything. I think my dad just was like, keep her away from boys for, for a few years. Uh, and, and, and that was that. So that was just that in a nutshell of my first experience of anxiety, if you like. But obviously then I didn't really recognise it because I've not really talked about it before. I've, I've only ever written about my mental health. So it's... I suppose it is the thing, isn't it? It's, it's one thing to write about... Yeah. It's one thing to write about your mental health issues and, you know, but, you know, talking about it is, is harder because you, you, I suppose you have a bit of a wall yeah. when you write something or you can do it to yourself actually saying something out loud is yeah sometimes is, can be the hardest thing and that story that I've just told not m- that many people know that story I don't even know if I've told Mark my my partner that that story mm. properly before so that's quite a big thing for me to share that with you and and yeah. to all our listeners so <laughs> that's why it feels good so yeah high school went fine I did great went to college that was great um and then went to university and just I just seemed to be excelling through my academic life because I seemed to have this f- like fear ingrained into me from an early age of not wanting to fail and not wanting to embarrass myself. Um, so I just literally ploughed myself into working hard and being a SWAT and being a nerd and all those bullying terms I used to get called. Um, but obviously in college, I met my first boyfriend um, at the age of 16 and all that started. 
And yeah, I was in a relationship with, with him for three years. And obviously this was my first experience of a relationship at 16. So I thought what I was going through was, was quite normal. Um, I didn't think it was, you know, anything wrong with your boyfriend laying hands on you or controlling you to the point where you couldn't see your friends anymore. I just thought that was because I've not had a boyfriend before and because I went to an all-girls school, all my friends who I hung out with, you know, we were like part of like the geeky gang, so we didn't really think about boys or, you know, have experience of boys like the popular girls did. So we didn't really, I didn't really have any reference to, you know, what it was like to be in a relationship, you know, in, in our day and age. And obviously my mum and dad's relationship were great and stuff, but I just, I was so consumed by like the thought of I was in love with this person that, I didn't really recognise the signs and I suppose you don't, you know, when, when that takes over and, and that's such an early age. But it came to the point where I went on my first holiday with this person and we went away with his family. And obviously that's a big thing for someone, like going away on, on a plane the first time. So I was very scared, but also very excited at the same time. But it got to the point where one day me and this person had a big argument Um and he actually locked me in a hotel room for three hours. Um, and I couldn't get out. And I was screaming and crying. And I literally, after he came and got me, I had to lie to the rest of the family and just pretend we just had an argument and just had to... Because I was so scared of what he was going to do to me. And then after that holiday experience, I came home and that pr- the relationship pretty much ended there. So I'm sort of talking about events that sort of led up to the anxiety increasing and, and the depression diagnosis. Um, so yeah, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, but I know, is it, it, you know, the, the being in sort of controlling relationships can be very damaging on someone's mental health because, you know, like, you know, those those three hours that you were in a hotel room probably seemed like the longest three hours in the world yeah I was I was um 18 um I was scared I was in a country didn't know um and I just I I was more just you know scared of not revealing anything to this person's mum and dad Mm. I was more worried about that which is quite quite a, a weird way to think do you know what I mean rather than worry about your own safety I was just terrified terrified of I was worried what, about yeah. my own safety but I was just terrified of revealing anything and causing more upset to this person than than myself and was that sort of that sort of controlling relationship was that something which had gone on for a long period of time yeah but I felt like it got worse like the the, the boundaries got um more stricter so I didn't see my friends for a few months and I lost many friends because of that relationship mm. um I just seemed to be spending more time at this person's house than than my own um but yeah after that holiday experience I eventually broke out of that I do I don't it's all a blur to me I don't know how I got up got the courage to even do this but I actually went round to this person's house and ended the relationship to their face rather than Mm. over text or anything like that and it was the hardest thing I've done but what followed after that was just a torment of abuse and almost stalking 
Um, but yeah, that that was that. And then fast forward a few few years, um, I graduated from from university. I had a few relationships in between then. Obviously not as bad as that previous one, but none of them didn't really work for various reasons. I think that was mainly because I was quite damaged and I was just didn't trust anyone anymore. So yeah, I, I actually um, graduated from Liverpool John Moores in 2014 um, in a degree in journalism. And I got a job two days before I actually graduated in Lancaster to be a trainee reporter for the Lancaster Guardian and the Vista newspaper Morecambe and the Lancashire Post in Preston. So yeah, moved up there, not a care in the world, didn't really realise what I was doing because I didn't know anyone in Lancaster. Didn't, it was the first time that I've ever lived away from my mum and dad because when I went to university, because I'm from the Wirral, I just stayed at home. Mm. So it was a big step for me, but... As always, which has been a theme throughout my life, I responded the way I respond to change is very delayed. Like, I'll just go with flow, and then I'll realise, shit, <laughs> I've actually done this, and then like, then the fear and everything else sets in. Like that reaction's delayed. So I did all that, um, and then it was one one morning when I was in my flat in Lancaster. It was on a Friday morning. I was used to being work at nine. And I woke up about, well, I woke up before my alarm went off and I thought I was having a heart attack because I woke up sweating and I couldn't breathe. Like I was really like struggling to breathe and my chest was really tight and like, I just, I just couldn't get my breath. So I just remember nearly fainting off the bed to try and grab my phone to die. And I pressed nine, nine, and then I started to breathe again. And obviously this was my first experience of a panic attack. Cause, but I've not ever, I've never had a panic attack, so I didn't know what it was at all. Um, and I had to go into work, and I was talking to my boss at the time, and, and she said that sounds like a panic attack and stuff. So that was obviously my first experience of it, and it was terrifying. And then I just lived in fear of when the next one was going to be because I was like, I couldn't breathe. And then after that, for all that year, I had about. I had about 20 panic attacks in a year. Some of them quite horrific to the point where I was in um, Primark with my mum shopping and it was just really, you know what Primark's like. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't the one in Liverpool, it was the one in Chester. And um, yeah, we just, we were walking through and I just literally stopped and couldn't breathe in the middle of the floor and staff had to go and get a chair for me and it was it was very embarrassing but um it happened and 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 that was that really um so that was my feeling like experience of panic attacks so as I was saying to you at the start of the episode a lot of things through my life have been like peppercorned through like leading up to like where I'm gonna go with this anyway <laughs> sorry I just feel like I'm ranting to you Michael but um <laughs> no that's fine um <laughs> I have like all these lists of things in my head that I wanted to talk about. Um, so yeah, that was that. And then I was I was at Kendall Calling Music Festival um, in my, it was the second year I went and I was covering it for, for the paper. And you know what it's like, you have a, you have a couple of drinks. Um, so I had a couple of drinks and then I got a photo. I noticed on my phone, I had like five missed calls off my mum. Um, 
And I was like, oh. So, so I listened to the voicemail and the signal was quite bad there. And she said, oh, you need to, you need to ring me right now. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I answered it. And I was all like happy, like, yeah, yeah. I was like, hi, mom, you okay? And then she was just like, are you sitting down? And I was like, so. And then I just remember me holding on to Bethany. And I was like, and everything just like slowed, slowed right down. She said, um, your, your uncle, um, he, he's dead. And I was just like, what? And I started laughing, like, because I was like, I think it was because of the shock. Mm. And she was like, yeah, your uncle's killed himself. Um, and I just remember crumbling to the floor. And yeah, like to hear that, you know, it's interesting. We've heard so many people talk about having suicidal thoughts. Um, and I've, I've had them um, later on in life. Um, but we've not really talked about the impact of, you know, suicide that, and how that impacts someone else's mental health, you know, if you've lost someone to suicide. Um, so that really affected me um, for, for quite a while afterwards. It still does now. That was in 2016. Um, you know, it's always that question of why and and why didn't you talk to me about if you mm. were struggling? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if this sister I can't say it. I don't know if this stats right, but I have read somewhere you know if someone in the family commits suicide, you are more likely to think about suicide yourself. I don't know if that's correct. Um, don't quote me on that, but I have read that somewhere. Mm. Um, and I sort of became a bit obsessed with it. I came obsessed with wanting to know what he did, wanting to know how, wanting to know why. All these things, I came very obsessed um, to the point where I started to think about it more when I was going through panic attacks and when I was constantly not being able to switch off the worrying about everything. Since I was little, I've always had worrying, worried thoughts. I've had about, you know, if someone looks at me, I'll go, they hate me. Or if someone, you know, says doesn't get back to me by text, I'll go, oh, what have I done? I've pissed them off. Mm. Or, you know, little things like that, that all build up. You know, worry about money, worry about everything. Everything, like, is just constant in my mind. So it got to the point where I was thinking, I'm just, I just want to go to sleep and wake up and not have to worry about anything. So the only way I can do that is to just go to sleep forever. Um, And it wasn't like I had a thought telling me, you should go and kill yourself. It was like a thought of, let's get rid of this pain because I can't continue anymore. Um, and my first, as, as you were referencing the article I wrote, my first experience of this um, was late at night, um, a couple of years ago in 20, I can't remember, 2017, 2018, yeah. Um, my, I used to live with my mum and dad and, um, I, I, I live with my partner Mark now, but um, yay! <laughs> um, yeah, he we have a German Shepherd Labrador dog. She's called Kaya. She's an old lady now. Um, she's ten, um, but yeah, he normally takes her out around the block at around about quite late at night, about half ten, just before he, you know, um, we all go to bed so she can do her business. Um, but obviously, the nature of our work, we write about a lot of well, I don't know about yourself, Michael, but I'm sure you have. Mm. Write about a lot of horrible stories like crime and court and, and, you know, people being stabbed, unfortunately, people being murdered. 
you know, so I love my job, but I sometimes am guilty of taking my work home with me and I can't switch off. So I used to get terrified when my dad used to go around the block with the dog because I used to think my brain would just go, he's going to die. Your dad's not going to come back. Your dad's going to get stabbed. Dog's going to get run over and then your dad's going to get run over. He's not coming back. He's not coming back. And I was trying to sleep and I couldn't rest until I heard my dad turn the key and I couldn't. And normally it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes, but I couldn't. This this one particular night, I couldn't switch it off and it got to the point where I woke up, like woke up out of bed trying to not, um, after not being able to go to sleep and I was sweating and I was standing there shaking like, because these thoughts wouldn't shut up. And I and I was about to go downstairs uh, and I, I can't even remember doing this, but I was about to go downstairs and just take loads of tablets, but then my dad turned the key in the door. Um, he was like, are you okay? And yeah, I was like, I'm okay, I'm going back to bed. And as soon as I heard him in the house, I just fell asleep. But, and it terrified me to think that I was that close over, over what? Over a fear of something that's not going to happen or a fear of something that I've just made up in my head. Mm. So I was terrified. So I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? Um, so that happened. and But I suppose the only good thing for me was the thought of me hurting myself scared me so much that I'd never acted upon it. Um, and I know a lot of other people are different and it works in many different ways for many other people. I'm sort of getting it this time you'd never sort of gone and looked to professional help or advice for that, you know, the take no. to the doctors or anything like that? Or? Well, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned earlier. So when I was in Lancaster in 2015, I got diagnosed with chronic anxiety and depression. Mm. So that's when my medication started with antidepressants. I actually went to the doctor's because of the panic attacks and from advice from my from my boss at the time is actually like my mum. Um, she's called Debbie, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her, but she was such a big help to me because obviously it was hard for me to be away from my mum and dad because I'm, I'm very close to my family. So she was like my sort of surrogate mum in Lancaster and, you know, really helped me through those difficult times of panic attacks. And um, it was her advice to, 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 to go to the doctor and I'm glad I did because the doctor that I had in Lancaster was just such a lovely lady. Um, I could tell she understood straight away because um, it took me all my courage to even talk about it. And I was physically shaking when I was talking about it because I just thought, I don't know, I had this thing in my head that they're not going to believe me and they're going to think I'm just talking a load of nonsense and they're not going to have heard of this thing called panic attack because I, I, I read some of it online after I um, had it and sort of, just put two and two together and I was thinking oh she's not going to believe me she's not going to believe me she's going to think I'm a weirdo she's going to tell me to get out for stop wasting my time and all that that's going around in your head and you, you know and you could just be looking at someone now couldn't you in the waiting room at the doc- in the doctors mm. you don't know what's going on inside their head so that's what was going on inside my head I couldn't so when I normally talk out loud to someone it's almost like <laughs> so um yeah, so sorry, yeah, I was I was diagnosed in twenty fifteen with chronic anxiety and depression. Um but yeah, something that's changed for me recently um is we've never really talked about how mental illness can change over time, especially if you have like a long term psychological mm. condition. Um 
I'm in the process of getting re-diagnosed at the moment, which is what work is helping me with quite a lot. And I'm thankful for it because I haven't had a panic attack for quite a while now. And I have had various treatments with CBT therapy. Um, that didn't really work for me. I know it's great for others, you know, others might think it's great um, and that's fine. But for me, it wasn't really helpful. However, sorry, it was helpful short term. It wasn't helpful long term for me. Um, for those of you who don't know what CBT is, it's cognitive behavioural therapy. And it's, in a nutshell, it's like training your brain to think more positively and think, think you know, in a different way and putting those mechanisms in place to understand what you're thinking isn't real and, 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 and things like that with anxiety, it mainly looks at. Um, so I had that and it made me recognise the signs and, and the symptoms of my anxiety and and that was really helpful in, into associating, okay, this, is, this isn't really real right now. So it, it did work, but long term, I sensed there was other underlying issues with my mental illness. Um, and then obviously the, the story where I referred to um, me wanting to take my own life when my dad was out, that sort of was how it exacerbated over the years, over time. It started out with panic attacks and worrying thoughts and it's exacerbated into that now. Um, but what changed for me really was, um, sorry, one second. So my mum became poorly last year. Um, it was about, she, uh, she went to Tenerife with my dad in May last year. It was like for their wedding anniversary, the 29th wedding anniversary. It's the 30th this year, so it was a big year for us. Mm. Um, and she became quite poorly afterwards. She only went for a week and we thought she had gastritis because she couldn't stop being she couldn't stop vomiting and go in the toilet. Sorry, sorry guys. Um, but yeah, so she, she went to the doctors, they gave her some antibiotics. She was fine for a few days, but then it went back to normal. And it was this long, long-winded process of, um, you know, going to hospital, figuring out what's wrong, having some x-rays, going to Arrow Park, being transferred to Royal Liverpool. And it, we, they had, she had a scan and it showed on her pancreas there was a, a weird, they, they say abnormal, abnormal and not anomaly or whatever the term is. That's what they said to us and said it could be cancerous. So obviously that was a big blow, but we I was still in the back of my mind, I was still hopeful that it might not be cancer. cancer. It could just be, they just might just be saying that to, you know, think of the worst for us so then everything will be okay. Mm. Um, And they were like, so what we're going to do is we're going to operate, we're going to open your mum up and we're going to hopefully remove that part of her pancreas because you can live without your pancreas. And then hopefully we'll just keep an eye on that if it is cancer. Turned out obviously it was cancer. Um, it's quite a big tumour on her pancreas and on her spleen. And your spleen doesn't actually do anything in your body. It's just there by your pancreas. And for instance, well, I think it does, I think it regulates white blood cells because it's often taken out when someone's had a car, car bad car crash. Mm. So that was all where it was and they were hopefully going to operate. So they, so they operated. Um, it was a very, very intense procedure and we were very worried at Royal Liverpool, um, who were amazing, by the way. Um, but they gave us the worst news 
and it was the most horrible day of my life. Um, yeah, we obviously mum was in and out. We went to go and see mum first. She was in and out, so she didn't really know what was going on. But she obviously recognised us and, and stuff. So we were like, "Hi, mum." I was in a lot of pain. She was in like a special unit in Royal Liverpool, where only like you were allowed two visitors at a time. My brother was in work this day. Um, so it was just me and my dad. This was this was in August now, by the way, um, of last year. And I remember the surgeon who actually performed my mum's surgery being there with a woman. And they were like offering to take us to the room, to a room. And I was thinking, I know what's going to happen. Like, I've seen this in films. I've seen enough to know, to understand this situation. But even so, I had tight hold of my dad's hand. Um, we walked to the room and I was just looking at this woman. We sat down. I was thinking, why are you here? Like, who are you? Like this, obviously this nurse. I was like, it's him, we want, it's the surgeon we want to speak to, but I understood why she was there. Because the surgeon basically said, there's nothing that we can do. Um, he said, unfortunately, the cancer spread um, in your mum's bowel and stomach, and it's all now going to be about managing your mum's life. And obviously the surgeon just says it, as a matter of fact, it's his job, but I just remember just... I broke down, I just cried. I just, me and my dad cried. Um, and I had this overwhelming sense of guilt to, because I was like, here's me, you know, contemplating suicide and my mum hasn't got a choice of whether she lives or not. Mm. Um, and that's not fair. And I had that horrible, I had that horrible um, sense of guilt that, uh, <coughs> that I could even go through that um, and put my family through that stress. And then, yeah, here's my mum just dealt with this awful blow and that's very selfish of me. I suppose it's like, it's interesting because in a way you may see it as being selfish, but actually, this is probably not the right word, but actually it's a really, I think, really interesting way of of looking at you know if you're having these thoughts that actually look I you know that those words you just said have, have probably stick with me for a while where you just said well actually you know like I'm contemplating I have these really bad thoughts but actually my mum doesn't have that choice and yeah and that's and I know it sounds weird to say this but for if that was me I'd use that to cling on to yeah to, to keep sort of positive thoughts to my to, to myself about you know if I was struggling with my depression so much that actually you know that that actually to have that that piece of thing to say I must cling on for yeah. my mum you know and and that's how it's changed for me recently um you know I've just done everything for my mum and just been there a lot for her um and you know she's been through chemo now she's lost her hair she's been through chemo but she's put weight back on um, she's doing really well and we're, wait, we're waiting for a scan on the 24th because we think some of the cancer's diminished from her stomach and bowel. So we're, we're very positive. Um, and, you know, they, they don't they don't know the lifeline of, of, of my mum. You know, even if they did, I don't know if I'd want to know. I wouldn't mm. want to know. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we've been through a lot as a family, but, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to cling on to the positive. It's just... My anxiety won't let me in terms of worrying about when I'm going to lose my mum 
um, that won't go away. And I suppose that's normal for anyone going through what I'm going through. You know, it's a worry. And, you know, my mum's only 52. I'm only 27. It's it's quite a young age. Um, I mean, it's horrible to lose any parent at any age. Mm. But um, So, yeah, it's just that worry of how, what's my mental health going to be like when I do lose mum. Um, and that's just the way my brain works. It's just so annoying that I worry about something that's not even happened yet. It's just so frustrating. And I can't just... Obviously, you know, when I'm around my mum, I'm... I'm I'm happy and I, I would never want to, you know, make life negative for her because that's, that's not what I want to do. But, you know, after I've been around my mum and I go home, I just, I just break down then because I can. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is you know, like, it sounds like sometimes you've, you know, is, is there anything that you've picked up along the way that has helped you sort of cope with this or is the stuff that, you know, you've, you said you didn't really have a great time with CBT. So, yeah. you know, was there anything that you learned outside of CBT or maybe something that you've learned doing these podcasts or anything like that? Because I, cause I remember you sort of, when your mum wasn't well and we, we, were, we were going through, you know, series one, we were finishing series one of this podcast. So, I mean, was there anything that you've sort of picked up which has sort of stuck with you for that time um, that sort of pushed you through? Yeah. Just before I say it, everyone's different. So, you know, what yeah. works for me doesn't necessarily work for others. Um, I've never, it's quite weird because I've never been like a sport fan. I was never good at school. I was always, always that person that no one wanted to be on the team and I like, dropped the egg on <laughs> spoon tape. But um, I found the gym really helpful. Um, I joined one in Lancaster and it was quite a nice community. And that sort of carried on with me when I moved back to the world. And I just found that when I'm at the gym, I'll concentrate on is what I'm actually doing. I don't have time to be worrying about anything else because I'm on the treadmill and I want to do 10 minute, a 10 minute run. And then I want to go and do some weights and then I want to go and do this. So I have that in my head and I think, okay, I've got an hour. I want to do this, this and this. And I want to do this, do this many calories on this run. Or I want to I want to do this next and, and, and stuff. So that's helped me in terms of just forgetting about something for an hour and, and training my brain to not think about anything but running or or whatever I'm doing in the gym mm. that's that's been a massive help for me um it sounds cliche because you know we always say this but the biggest help for me is talking about it like the first time I told my mum and dad they were just so supportive well they, they didn't understand completely but you know they they were supportive nonetheless and the first time I spoke openly about it on social media was was huge like I wasn't expecting the response I did because I still have that fear of thinking everyone's gonna think I'm a weirdo <laughs> um but Twitter for example has been a, a massive lifeline it's so it's so nice to to get support and even if I am like you know because most of the time I, I don't want to talk about my mental health and from having a crap day so I just tend to write a tweet and um I used to think that I used to be terrified of doing that because I used to think, oh, people think I'm attention seeking or or just, just wanting attention and stuff. But I've started to do that and people actually respond and people actually message me who actually care. And that's just nice. Mm. And it's just nice to have that sort of communication and bond with certain people in the mental health community. Um, obviously, you know, there's pros and cons to social media, but I've found over the years that's really helped helped me. 
last week, um, yes. well, the last episode we did, um, you set me a challenge. I did, <laughs> yes. You set me a challenge to sort of, um, you wanted me to sort of take care of myself a bit more, which obviously I do, but, you know, a bit more, which is fine. So I have been, which is great. So um, I do, just obviously just listening to your story there, I do sort of, I've thought of something which... I could set for you as a challenge. Okay. <laughs> I think some a way that sort of I manage my worries. So managing sort of, oh, I'm I've got this this worry here, and I'm overthinking this, that, and the other. Is sometimes I don't allow my head the space for the worry. Yeah. In a in a positive way. Not that I'm so. I'm not that I'm overworking my brain. It's that yeah. What I'll do is a bit like what you said when you go to the gym. You, you can only really focus on going to the gym. You can only really focus on doing those sort of things. So what I think might be quite good is maybe finding something else. As I don't know what else you do in your sort of life. It could be something maybe you could do with your mum. Yeah. Or maybe something you could do with your boyfriend or something you could literally just do for yourself, by yourself. And being sort of a regular part of your life to have that sort of build of a community. Yeah. So like, you know, I don't I don't know what works for you. You know, it could be, you know, people sort of do those park runs on a Saturday and things like that. Or, you know, like some people might join a choir or do you know what I mean? Like, you know, something like that. You know, like people, everyone's different. But I'd quite like to see you sort of finding somewhere to channel a bit of worry into because because I know that for me like I know I talked about this a lot last week was that I find a way so when I have my anxiety and I have things like that I find a way to channel that into something so to cope with it so when I do like things with my theater I can only think about the theater yeah when I go and do my gym I don't do I don't I don't go in the the gym as itself I do all the classes mm. so when I'm doing I choose the gym classes that force me to think about doing that gym class and even if it's just for an hour or for an evening it's getting me away from those thoughts or do you know what I mean like you know there are loads of choirs on the Wirral I'm not saying that's what you have to do no one wants to hear me sing (laughs) but you know what I mean like do you know what but something you know like something which you could do um people do I I I don't necessarily know what you quite like to do but I quite like to do yoga and I used to do that quite a lot but I haven't done it but yeah. now that I work from home, yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect opportunity to sort of do that because I've got a yoga mat and everything. So well, I do need to get back into that. Well, just I think just something to allow you to hopefully manage your worry on a because like I I know I know, and this was I suppose this might be an interesting about your relationship as well because you know that you sort of if you see that someone all the time and not all the time but if you're seeing them in the evenings and stuff like that and things like that you can go so actually this is my time now so yeah. you can go away do you know not oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you can go and play uh fifa upstairs while i we actually did that on saturday um yeah. so you know that's why i'm quite lucky to have such a supportive partner really because my friend best friend came around and we watched the taylor swift documentary on netflix on saturday night and had had a few gins and Mark just stayed upstairs and played FIFA and then came down to sleep on the sofa while me and Bethany slept in our bed. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he, he, he is great. And he d- he does give me that space when I need it. Um, but ultimately, he, he's there when I need him as well. And I'm quite lucky to have finally found someone who loves me for who I am. Cheesy, but yeah. <laughs> 
if you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can get the proper advice you need. We aren't experts, but the Samaritans provide free, confidential support for people experiencing feelings of distress or despair. You can phone them 24 hours a day on 116-123 or visiting thesamaritans.org.uk. The Diana Award also provides a crisis messenger service which gives young people 24-hour crisis support across the UK. If you are a young person in crisis, you can text DA for free to 85258. That's DA to 85258.